0: Drop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those
1: two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee? Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee.
0: Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry.
1: Welcome to Episode 10 of Unknown Orbits. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Today, we're featuring Philip Francis Nolan's Armageddon 2419 A.D., the first appearance of science fiction icon Buck Rogers. The story Armageddon 2419 A.D. was first published in the August 1928 issue of Amazing Stories. It tells the story of Alan Rogers not Buck Rogers at the time. There was no Buck Rogers in the original story. Alan Rogers was investigating underground radiation and was trapped by a cave-in and somehow held in a state of suspended animation for nearly 500 years. When he wakens, he finds that the United States was nearly destroyed first by a world war against the Europeans, then conquest by China. He joins with the scattered bands of humanity to begin to overthrow the invaders. What year was this written in again? 1928. 28. Do you know if China was a threat? No, I think we were allies with China at the time, Um, or we were subjugating them. I mean, uh, I don't think the Japanese had invaded China yet. We certainly became allies of China once the Japanese invaded. But this was very much a yellow peril sort of story the chinese are very stereotypical it's no different than the fu manchu stories or other orientalist yellow peril type stories of the time of course they're very cruel you know they're they're barbaric in the way they treat people it was very entertaining it's fast paced to me it was very reminiscent of edgar rice burroughs in fact its plot is very reminiscent of the 1922 burroughs novel the moon maid both feature the idea of a dictatorship of the air. It's where you have an advanced group of people who have airships, not airplanes, airships that bomb and shoot out rays and machine gun people from the air. Like Yellow Peril, it was a very common idea going back into the Victorian era. Some notable examples of dictatorship by the air, Rudyard Kipling's With the Night Mail, a story of 2000 A.D., published in 1905. Jules Verne's Robor the Conqueror, published in 1886. And H.G. Wells got one in himself called The War in the Air, published in 1908, which also featured Asian Empire as villains. You know, I was thinking
0: the idea of the yellow peril, at least in America, it might date back to the conflicts in the late 19th century. I believe there was a time when China may have been specifically excluded
1: from immigration for a while? Well, yeah, that, I mean, that was part of the yellow peril myth was this idea. That we brought Asian immigrants over to help build the railroads, and there were actual anti-Chinese immigration laws written around the turn of the century to try to keep, you know, these quote-unquote hordes of Asians out of the country. But you also you also remind me that around the turn of the century, I don't remember exactly, you had the Boxer Rebellion in China, where native Chinese rebelled against the colonial powers, which would have been the United States, Britain, I think France, but certainly Britain and the United States. So there was a, an outright rebellion that was not successful. That might have had some bearing on it too. But honestly, it Yellow Peril, it was one of the many racist tropes that featured prominently in all forms of fiction going well, way back into the Victorian era. And as I said, if if we look at H.G. Wells' War in the Air, very similar. This was not exactly the most original. I mean, it was similar to Edgar Rice Burroughs' novel, similar to H.G. Wells. It was not the most novel thing that it was ever written, Probably typical of the sort of stuff that was being written in amazing stories at the time, derivative to some degree, more adventure than science. Although there was a little bit of science in how they'd figured out a way to disable the airships, there was a little bit of science in that. So
0: there are a lot of stories, particularly from this time, of current modern man being thrown into another situation, and he saves the day in the other place.
1: Yeah, that element is certainly present. Like I said, it's very Edgar Rice Burroughs in nature. I can think of a number of Edgar Rice Burroughs that feature the displaced hero, a hero at a time, hero from another planet who lands in this strange environment. And because of their superior intellect or their superior physical powers, they're able to rise quickly, become a leader and conquer the bad guys and so forth. So it fits very much into that trope, I guess you could say. But it's very entertaining. It's worth a read. It's a fun little story. If you like an Edgar Rice Burroughs-type adventure, it's probably right up your alley. Now, to give a little background to the story beyond its influences that we've talked about, this was a very important issue of Amazing Stories because in the same issue, E. E. Smith's Skylark of Space was published, ah, which turned out to be an extremely popular and extremely important story in the development of space opera. Some people credit it as the story that created or invented space opera. That may be the topic for another show, to talk about that in some detail, but certainly the fact that those two stories appeared in the same issue, both of which turned out to be extremely influential, as we'll learn here a little further into the episode, that's extremely interesting. And then in the same month... Edmund Hamilton's Crashing Sons was published in Weird Tales, which is also considered, along with Skylark of Space, to be one of the most important milestones in the development of space opera. So summer of 1928 was an important period in the development of a new genre for science fiction.
0: That's kind of amazing if you consider that that is only two years after it really started becoming a a genre.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it was two years after *Gernsback* started Amazing Stories. And in the early years, a lot of the content of Amazing Stories was reprints, reprints of H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, Edgar Allan Poe. Within two years, you had two very important stories. However you feel about space opera, they were both very important stories for the genre going forward. Now, Nolan was working as a newspaper reporter at the time. I think That may have contributed to the quality of the story, that he was a a professional writer. He's probably smart enough and talented enough to be able to copy Edgar Rice Burroughs fairly well. So because of his position as a newspaper reporter, he got into contact with John F. Dill, president of the National Newspaper Syndicate, who suggested that it be adapted as a newspaper comic strip. Now, we can talk a little bit about comic strips and the Sunday comics about how important those were in the 1920s and the 1930s. They were, you know, along with radio, they were the two biggest forms of mass media in the country. More people read the Sunday funnies and the comic strips than probably read books or magazines or anything like that. It was, it was extremely influential and important.
0: I do recall from the history of newspaper publishing when entertaining cartoons first started coming out that the newspapers had wars over the popular ones, paying off the creator to come to their newspaper and then back again.
1: That may have been true in the early part of the 20th century, but by the time 1929, which is when the first Buck Rogers strip premiered, newspaper syndicates pretty much were in control. National Newspaper Syndicate was the one that, when they transferred it to comics, they changed his name to Buck Rogers, It's speculated that it was because Buck Jones was a highly popular movie cowboy star at the time that they might have done it for that reason. But it certainly is a lot more punchier than Alan. So January 1929, the strip premieres. It was scripted by Nolan himself. And interestingly, in that same month, January 1929, Popeye and Tarzan comic strips first appeared. Buck Rogers was in the initial wave of adventure comic strips. Now people may have a different concept of Popeye now, but back in the early days, Popeye was very much an adventure strip where he would travel the world in his ship and go to strange lands and you know rescue damsels and fight monsters and do all kinds of interesting stuff. So Popeye Tarzan and Buck Rogers all came out at the same time, and clearly that was, whether that was direct imitation or it just was lucky timing that all of these franchises began at the same time, that was certainly a a sea change in comic strips. So now in addition to the, as you said, the funny comics, you now had adventure comics, and Buck Rogers was very prominent in that genre. So one of the things that I wanted to really point out in this episode is how important Buck Rogers was to the popularization of science fiction in general. Okay. So, the comic strip it was a success. It was very popular right from the beginning. It was popular enough where it inspired a radio series starting in 1932. The radio series only ran for 4 years, but it was revived several times. The comic strip itself ran uninterrupted until 1967.
0: I think the reality of the space race probably made Buck Rogers less popular.
1: Yeah, you can just imagine the cultural changes that occurred from the 50s to the 60s that would have made Buck Rogers, you know, less appealing. I don't know if it's something that I would have been interested in, you know, at the time when I was a kid. Maybe, maybe not. Hard to say. But Nolan did make some changes, to the characters in the comic strip. There was a character, a woman named Wilma, in the original story. In the comic strip, she was changed to his girlfriend, and he had a friend, a Dr. Hewer, who was the uh, scientist who helped make all kinds of gadgets for him. And they're fighting the Mongol hordes and the supervillain Killer Kane. Kane was probably the most popular villain in the strip. Initially, the first bunch of stories that were done for Buck Rogers were Earthbound, but... Within a few months, he was off into space. And that was, at the time, somewhat novel. At the time, I think we've talked about this in a previous show, that there were scientists, notable, respected scientists, who believed that space travel was impossible, that men would never be able to leave Earth's gravity, they wouldn't be able to live in space. So it was very much considered fantasy material at the time. So Buck Rogers was one of the important cultural figures that helped popularize... The idea of space travel. That was important. You know, whether his adventures were ridiculous or overblown or silly, it didn't really matter. The popularity of the strip helped to popularize the idea in people's minds that men could travel to space. So, to give you a gauge on how popular Buck Rogers was, again, there's a couple of side notes here. Kellogg's Cereal Company produced two Buck Rogers giveaway comics with their serial, one in 1933, and again in 1935. In 1934, at its peak, Buck Rogers appeared in 287 U.S. newspapers, translated into 18 languages, and appeared in an additional 160 international newspapers. We've already talked about the radio show in 1932. 1933, a line of Buck Rogers-branded toys came out.
0: Oh, those are really collectible now, I can tell you that.
1: Yes, especially the Buck Rogers Ray Gun, which was very, very popular. This was one of the very first franchise line of toys. Now it's a fundamental part of corporate marketing and profit is to put out a line of toys for your superheroes and your fantasy movies and all of that. This was revolutionary. This was different back in 1933. Buck Rogers was one of the first franchises to do that, to popularize a line of toys that went along with the comic strip. And to that effect, at the 1933-1934 World's Fair in Chicago, there was an exhibition that featured a 10-minute Buck Rogers film right next to the place where you could buy all the toys. So that was done to promote the toy line. And of course, if you remember the old World's Fairs, those were always the world of tomorrow, especially in the 1930s, 1940s, into the 1950s. They were always promoting futurism, the kitchen of the future, you know, for all the housewives with all the automated devices in the kitchen. And, you know, they would the, the car companies would bring in their futuristic cars for everybody to see.
0: I'd like to point out that for 1930, that was probably groundbreaking promotion for the toys.
1: Yeah, now, allegedly that the 10-minute film was pretty terrible, but I'm sure that the little kids in the audience didn't care. So another indication of how popular... Buck Rogers was at the time, is that Golden Books published 12 little big books featuring Buck Rogers.
0: Ah, you know, people forget that the little big books used to have a lot of content that wasn't cartoony. They had westerns. Yes.
1: And like The Lone Ranger. Yes, and I probably, I'm guessing Dick Tracy or Detective Stories, and they were like miniature versions of of the pulps to some degree. Little big books were a big deal back in the day. You know, we should explain what a big little book is. Good point. Why don't you, why don't you take that? Why don't you explain what a little big book was and, and why they were a big deal? The purpose
0: of the little big book was to give younger readers something to read, and it was molded with the youngest readers in mind. The physical book itself was about, um, I'd say, something like three inches by four inches. Every facing page was a cartoon. The text was on the left-hand side, and each page had maybe two, three paragraphs in nice, large print. So a little kid could work their way through the book, enjoying the cartoons, reading a few pages at a time, without being overwhelmed by the format of an adult book.
1: And they were brilliant in their conception. They had the combination of very readable prose sometimes they were adaptations of a movie or adaptations of uh, another literary like a book or something combined with those very colorful illustrations it was to some degree a precursor of comic books you know the the idea of combining illustrations and text obviously we were doing that in the comic strips as well but they were very popular well into the 1940s and I think into the 1950s if I'm not mistaken.
0: What big little books? In yes. the
1: seventies. We're really that late. Yeah. My mother wrote a few. Oh, did she did? Yeah. Oh. They were all published out of Racine, correct? Racine, Wisconsin. Yeah. So another local connection for us. I don't think I ever had any little big books when I was a kid. I don't remember reading any of them. Maybe when I was very little, but I know that they were certainly around. So that was yet another indication of how popular and important culturally that Buck Rogers was. And then the other one, the obvious one, was that eventually Hollywood did a 12-part movie serial, Buck Rogers, featuring Buster Crabb. And, of course, Buster Crabb is better known for being Flash Gordon in the movie serials. He was an Olympian, wasn't he, originally? He, was, he and Johnny Weissmiller were both Olympic swimmers. A very handsome guy, not the greatest actor in the world, but, you know, he took his shirt off. And he looked great without a shirt on, just like Johnny Weissmiller did. And he was athletic and charming and good-looking and, you know, everything you needed in a movie serial. And that brings up another thing that Buck Rogers did that he further popularized science fiction in the 1930s was inspired its number one imitator, Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon was, to some degree, ripped off from Buck Rogers. It had our stalwart hero, he had a girlfriend, and they had a doctor who was his best friend. And then they stole from When Worlds Clyde the idea of flying off to a planet that was menacing Earth and going up against the evil Ming the Merciless, dictator of the planet Mongo. Flash Gordon was just as popular as Buck Rogers, hugely popular. It had many of the same merchandising and adaptations that Buck Rogers did. So between the two of them, they pretty much ruled the 1930s in the imaginations of young people, and many of whom, and I've read quotes from science fiction authors saying, yeah, the first thing that really caught my attention was Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon. And that's what got them interested in the idea of science fiction, and got them started on the path to becoming science fiction authors. So even though, Probably a lot of our modern listeners may only be familiar with Buck Rogers, the terrible 1970s TV show. Not that terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. I hated the little robot. Yeah, the only reason that TV show ever got made was Star Wars. And of course, every... Star Wars rip-off in the late 1970s, early 80s, had a comical robot. Remember Disney's The Black Hole? Remember that movie? Yeah, it was was what? It was like a basketball robot? Yeah, it was some stupid robot that flew through the air, and I think Roddy McDowell did the voice for it, maybe. So I'm guessing he didn't invest wisely. (laughs) Well, I don't know. It's Disney. You know, that that was a big deal at the time, Disney doing a science fiction movie for the first time. No, I shouldn't say it. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was... Oh, I guess that counts. Yeah, that counts. But they had to cash in on the Star Wars craze. So the Buck Rogers TV show, just a digression. This goes a little bit beyond our purview, but just a digression. As somebody who grew up in the 1970s, my God, television was awful in the (laughs) 1970s. It may be the worst decade of television ever. But let me make just one argument.
0: In the 1970s, your choice of television watching was either those shows or staring at the wall in your bedroom.
1: Yeah, (laughs) or if you were lucky, you might have a UHF station in town. Like here in, in Milwaukee, we had Channel 18, and Channel 18 was a pretty good UHF station. You were able to watch reruns of I Love Lucy and the Jackie Gleason show, The Honeymooners, and what was the one about the maid? There were like three of them yeah <laughs> there's hazel hazel that's the one i'm thinking of hazel the maid and then there was the one where
0: the title was stupid it was like my my dad is i have a great dad <laughs> billy's dad billy's dad or something with uh, the the magician the magician the guy who played the magician oh so, uh, uh, the, the guy who played the hulk oh bill bixby bill bixby had a show where he had a maid and a little boy, and it was called uh, Courtship of Eddie's Father. Terrible title. Oh,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, you're right. Yeah. One of three TV shows that Bill Bixby was famous for, including The Incredible Hulk and science fiction, and this does fall into our purview, uh, My Favorite Martian. Oh, yes. See, that's the thing. The situation comedies in the 1960s, this is a total digression for this podcast, by the way, Situation comedies in the 1960s were way better than the situation comedies in the 1970s. Way, way better. I mean, they were, first of all, many of them were really bizarre. Green Acres is an extremely bizarre show.
0: Okay, I won't go into it now, but the existence of Green Acres comes from a swapping back and forth of rich in the country and poor in the city that goes all the way back to the Egg and I novel in the 1930s.
1: Yes. Well, Mon Kettle. Yeah. Which is basically that's what the Beverly Hillbillies were just a remake of Mon Pa Kettle. But not to digress too far, try to get us back on track here. Buck Rogers was this sort of stupid adventure show that you got in the 1970s, along with shows like The Six Million Dollar Man, I'm trying to think, The Incredible Hulk that had very cheesy special effects. All of these shows were filmed in the same five-acre location outside of Hollywood. You could literally say, hey, that tree right there, I've seen that in five other TV shows, that exact tree. And it it was completely, it was terrible. Except for Erin Moran, who might be the only thing about that show that was was really high quality in her skin-tight spacesuits, but... Yeah, I think they used to call that something for the dads. <laughs> for the dads, yeah. So that was Buck Rogers' ignominious end, was the TV show in the 1970s, and there hasn't been a revival of Buck Rogers since then. Poor Buck Rogers. But let's just give him the full credit for having been one of the most important figures in popularizing science fiction back in the earliest days of science fiction. You
0: know, I wouldn't have thought of it before you said it, but the idea that... Buck Rogers appealed to the very young and that starts them on the path that after they grow out of Buck Rogers they're going to seek out older different science fiction because now they're interested in it
1: well sure and for me personally I think of all those Saturday morning cartoons in the 1960s like Space Ghost and the Herculoids Johnny Quest all of those shows which are totally geared for children those were hugely instrumental in developing my tastes going forward in life. So I think that's a pretty common pattern, that the dumbed down, simplistic adventure stories are what captures the imagination of kids. And then as happened in science fiction. A lot of those kids in the 1930s started reading amazing stories or astounding or planet stories. And Along the way, every now and then, they'd read a really good science fiction story written by a really good author, and that would inspire them to try to become a writer and to try to reach that level of writing. You know, they all didn't come out and say, I want to write an, a story just like Buck Rogers, full of purple prose and monsters and space opera. Some of them because of Buck Rogers, were exposed to better quality science fiction writing and wanted to emulate those writers. And that's where you get people like Isaac Asimov coming out of the 1930s and Ray Bradbury for that matter. So he was very important. I don't know what else I can say about that, but I just wanted to really make that point clear how important Buck Rogers was to the development of science fiction.
0: So the way that Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon come into popularity and the others that you mentioned, it kind of reminds me, and I don't mean this to denigrate the creators in any way whatsoever. But when you have the beginnings of a genre, it's it's basically the firstest with the mostest becomes the most famous.
1: Yeah, um, I think there's validity to that. The timing certainly was perfect because if Nolan would have written that story two years earlier or even a year earlier, before the advent of adventure comic strips became a thing, if you remember, I pointed out that Popeye and Tarzan premiered the same month as Buck Rogers, so clearly that was a timing issue, that timing was right where the newspaper syndicates were looking for a new form of content, and because of his unique position being a newspaper person with contacts in the industry, it very much was right person in the right place at the right time. That's a big part of it. But like you said, somebody has to be the firstest with the mostest, and he was the guy. He was the guy that was there, Johnny on the spot at the right time. And who knows how the history of science fiction would have been different if he wouldn't have written Buck Rogers and nobody came up with the idea of doing a science fiction comic strip in 1929. How could that have affected the growth and popularity of science fiction? That's a good question, I think.
0: And potentially, if he hadn't written that and someone else had written something else. It might have been just as popular in that particular media, but not be as flexible enough to move into radio and comic strips.
1: What I'm questioning is, would they have even bothered with a science fiction strip? If if he hadn't written the story and been the man with connections, maybe they would have written uh, a medieval uh, Prince Valiant type thing. Maybe they would have gone with a detective story, which they probably did. I don't know when Dick Tracy came out. But it's not like somebody was sitting around in an office going, George, the thing that we need is a science fiction comic strip. We just got to find somebody to... It's not like Elvis. Elvis became Elvis because there was a bunch of people in the music industry going, Boy, if we could just get a white boy to sing these black songs, we could make a million dollars. So they were looking for Elvis. But I don't think anybody was sitting around in 1929 going, Gee, if we could only find an idea for a science fiction comic strip, we could make a million dollars. So I really do think that the field of science fiction owes a debt to Nolan and Buck Rogers for that reason. This may be a side
0: thought, but sometime I want to discuss the formation of genres. Yeah. Because growing up, I just had this idea that genres were this immutable, predefined thing. And now being older, I know that a genre can be anything and can pop up. All that really defines it is popularity. Right.
1: Right. And that's actually a topic that we're going to be talking about here in an upcoming episode. So that's it for tonight's episode. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird.
0: I'm Steve Reitze.
1: Keep watching the stars.
0: That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits.
1: Two guys from Milwaukee?